Well, good morning to you. Glad you're here. It's a beautiful spring day. I think we're supposed to be in the mid-80s today. By raise of hands, who's given in and turned on their air conditioner yet? Okay. The few, the proud. <laughs> Which ones? I don't know. Uh, tell you what, I, I like it cool, and it's always a challenge. I don't like this time of year where it's the whole who can hold out the longest thing. Um, boy, put me in a fridge. That's where I'm happy. I don't like it. I don't like it warm. So um, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is where we'll be today. We are going to cover the whole chapter, Lord willing, and continue our series in the book of Deuteronomy. Our plan is to end, I think, in about four more sermons after this. We're approaching the end of Deuteronomy. If you can believe it, we started back in October. So we've been in Deuteronomy for a while. We could have been in there a lot longer, uh, but we found a pace and we're just kind of moving along uh, that direction. So let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer again, and then we'll uh, get into this scripture that God has for us today. Father, again, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done, what you continue to do in the hearts and minds of people. We thank you that you are so good so good in every way. There is no blemish nor spot. You are perfect in all you say and do. When we consider your holiness, it is so foreign to us because we are depraved by nature in heart and mind. It takes your work to change us. It takes your work to cause us to be born again to a living hope. And so as we approach you before your holy throne, even in prayer right now, we recognize the weight, we recognize the reverence, but Lord, uh, your scripture says we can come with boldness before this throne because Jesus has died for us and he rose again and he granted us his righteousness The very perfections of God are on our account. So as we come before you in prayer, we no longer tremble in fear of judgment, but we come boldly knowing you are our Father. We've been adopted into your family. You have set this great love we've sung about this morning. You've set that great love on us. You want to hear our petitions, our concerns, and our cares. You desire to listen to each prayer and to answer every one. Lord, I ask that today as we get into your word and we study some difficult sayings, some difficult passages, that you would give us grace to hear to ingest your word, to be changed from the inside out by the working of your spirit who inspired these very words. Lord, give us a sweet time of fellowship in your word. And I ask that you would use me in spite of being a sinner both by nature and by choice. Though I am fallen, God, use me cause me to speak the right words, that I wouldn't misspeak, but that I would teach rightly by your grace. God, give us a a wonderful 
study today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing to eat the vegetables of Scripture today. We're having a hard time right now with someone in our household not wanting to eat vegetables. It's not me. A couple years ago, I got over that. But there's someone in our home who's not wanting to eat vegetables, and we're finding vegetables in places where vegetables aren't supposed to be in our house. Sneaking vegetables into pockets and things of that nature. Um, It's easy to want to skip the vegetables, but isn't that where all the nutrients are? Isn't that where all that stuff is that you need to hear? We're eating vegetables today, and we're starting off on a touchy subject today. There are many people in this room and many people that we know who have experienced divorce. And Scripture speaks of divorce, and we're going to study that today in Deuteronomy 24, starting with the very first verse. It's interesting that this is the only place in the whole law, those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this is the only place in the whole law that mentions the word divorce. This is the only place that the Jews had for centuries to turn to when it came to the issue of divorce. And so we are going to place ourselves in their shoes first and study what it says and seek to recognize and understand what God said in the law about divorce. And then we'll move to the New Testament and see what our Lord taught us and what else uh, is there to put conditions on this issue. Just look at the very first verse with me, Deuteronomy 24.1. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And we're going to stop right there. He's going to continue the hypothetical scenario. But this one verse, if we stop right there, this is the beginning and ending of the Torah's teaching on the cause or the instance of divorce. He goes on to describe a specific situation where the wife will come back, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But right here, this is it. This is it in this one verse. It says that, the man, the husband, was not gracious in his disposition toward her. It says that the woman, the wife, found no favor in his eyes. That word for favor means grace. If you think all the way back to Genesis and Noah and his family, do you remember why God spared Noah and his family in the flood? It says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, not by anything he had done, not by any works of righteousness, but because God was just favorable to Noah. God chose Noah. God chose Noah's family. He was gracious toward Noah and his family. And to contrast with that, it says here that the wife found no grace in her husband's eyes. It says that the man found some indecency in her. Now, that's an interesting word. There's a Hebrew word for sin or transgression, and it's not that word. This word means nakedness, kind of an interesting word there. You would think that nakedness would have the opposite effect, wouldn't you, in a marriage? But it says 
that the indecency was the cause of not having grace toward her. There are very few times that this word is translated as something other than nakedness. This is one of those times. And from what we can tell, it's some sort of physical thing. It's something that he didn't like in her physically. It's possible that this is speaking of infertility. It's quite possible that what's in mind here is that the man showed her no grace because he didn't get something that he wanted from her. It's a very obscure phrasing. It's a very obscure verse. And because it is quite vague and because this is the only verse that launches into the issue in the whole law, that there were some who would say during that time, and even some today from a Jewish perspective, that say there was no sin issue, no moral issue, but that a man was allowed to divorce his wife for anything that he was not happy with. In fact, there's one school of thinking, a rabbinic teaching. It's the school of Hillel. Maybe you've heard that Jewish word before, Hillel. The school of Hillel taught that this verse gave a husband license to divorce his wife even if she was a bad cook. It said for a spoiled dish, how many marriages would be left if one spoiled dish was sufficient justification? Some rabbinic teachings were quite liberal and loose with it, yet other rabbinic teachings were quite conservative with it, saying that actually this physical defection that he sees in her has to do with sin. And there was one school of thought that, that taught to the Jews, you can't divorce your wife without sin being a driving factor. And then there was another school of thinking, perhaps the more popular school of thinking, that said, for any reason the husband deems unnecessary, he can divorce his wife. And it's important to notice that it is the husband doing the divorcing here. This is not like our society. The man was the one, 100%, who could initiate this and, and make it happen completely. It was all up to the husband. It says here in verse 1 also that he was to give her a certificate. This is critical. Certificate. This proved, as the woman went out into society, as she was sent away by her husband, the certificate proved that he had done this to her. If she was out with another man and had no certificate of divorce from her husband, then she could be tried for adultery. She could be punished for adultery. Yet with this certificate, it proved that her husband truly had sent her away. So we can recognize in this one verse that divorce was permitted, but not without a permit, so to speak. There had to be some sort of paper proof, some sort of hard copy that showed he had done this to her. This is all very vague, isn't it? Difficult to understand. It doesn't go into any detail as to when divorce is justified. This only talks about how the divorce is supposed to happen. It doesn't talk about when the divorce is allowed to happen. This verse does not seek, or the law itself does not seek to regulate divorce. It doesn't give us any revelation as to when it should be done. Notice, too, that this situation that we see in verse 1 between a man and his wife takes place purely at home. We've been reading through laws over the last several weeks where the city would come together, the community would come together, or it would go to a public trial. None of that with divorce. It happened at home. The man writes a certificate, sends her away from his house. It was permitted, as long as there was a certificate. Let's continue reading the specific issue at play. 
He gives her a certificate. He puts it in her hand. He sends her out from his house. Verse 2, and let's say she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So the basic situation here is that a woman was divorced by her husband. She was sent out. She found another husband, and that husband either divorced her or he died. She cannot return to her first husband. That first husband cannot take her again to be his wife, because that would be, it says, an abomination. An abomination. This is teaching us that light-hearted or shallow treatment of the covenant of marriage is evil in the sight of the Lord. Treating the covenant this way is an abomination. Divorce is always brought about by sin. That's why Scripture talks about it in this light. Divorce was not God's design, was it? He didn't give Adam and Eve instructions as to what to do if it didn't work out. But God brought them together in His design and said they should become one flesh. The treatment of marriage in Israel, the treatment of marriage and divorce had direct impact on the land. Look with me again at the end of verse 4. Look what it says. It brings sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. This had community impact. This had national impact treating the covenant this way. Interesting passage. The only passage in the whole law that talks about divorce. You just read it. There it is. Now, if we want to get into regulating when a divorce can take place, to find out what justifies divorce, we are entirely New Testament dependent. So turn with me to Matthew 19, Matthew chapter 19, and let's look and see what our Lord Jesus taught on this very passage. He gave us a a divine commentary on the passage in Matthew 19. And while you're turning there, I want to mention to you that there is a booklet that I co-wrote with the former pastor of our church, Lee Whitworth. And this booklet walks through the pertinent Bible passages for divorce and remarriage. We will have a bunch of these available in the lobby. You can grab one of these when you leave today for a deeper study on the issue. I'm really... Proud isn't the right word, so I don't want to say proud, but I guess I will. Uh, I'm proud of this booklet because Lee and I have different views on divorce and remarriage. Yet we wrote this together. And we don't draw specific conclusions here. We're hoping to help you draw your conclusion on the matter. It walks through several passages. It answers several objections, common objections to divorce and remarriage. And I think you'll find it to be a helpful study, if nothing else, pointing out all the passages of Scripture that talk about divorce, okay? So those will be available in the lobby. I want you to be aware of that. So let's look at what it looks like to regulate this issue, when it is appropriate to divorce. 
And this is Jesus' teaching to those who were living in that old covenant under the law that we just read. Let's start at verse 1. Matthew 19, verse 1. It says, When Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? (laughs) Okay, there you go. We were just reading the law, and it didn't say when, so now they're asking, is it open season? Any reason at all? Remember what the school of Hillel taught? You have, you know, bad hamburger helper one night, she's gone. Well, let's see what Jesus says. Verse 4, He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. And boy, is that true. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Let's notice a couple of things in Jesus' teaching here. Look back at verse 8 with me. What's the reasoning that divorce exists, according to Jesus? Because of your hardness of heart. See what I mean? That divorce and sin are always tied together. If it's not God's design, it's brought about through a fallen world. And notice, too, the correct verb that Jesus uses. Anything Jesus says is correct. And he uses the word permitted. Moses permitted you. It doesn't say he instructed you. It doesn't say he encouraged you. It says permitted you. It was like something that was happening that was allowed to happen. Just permitted. Not instructed, not encouraged, but permitted. And notice the exception here in verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and goes on to marry another, commits adultery. In the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus also taught this about divorce, that the exception is immorality. So Jesus' bottom line answer to their question, any reason at all, can I divorce my wife? Jesus' bottom line answer, there's a very, very short list of justifications for divorce. The one he gives us is immorality. 
The rest of the New Testament adds just one more exception, and we won't turn there, but you can write this down. It's 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, the only other exception is when an unbelieving spouse abandons a believer. It says, if an unbelieving spouse walks away from the Christian spouse, let that spouse leave. You are no longer bound in marriage, it says. And those are the two justifications for divorce that we have in the New Testament. The only two regulations for when it is appropriate to divorce. So if we are to summarize then, based on just that real short study, and again, I would encourage you to look through the booklet that goes into more detail about several passages, but if you were just to take my word for it that you read the only passage in the law and you've heard the only two exceptions in the New Testament, how would we summarize our view of divorce and remarriage thinking biblically? Well, we have to start by understanding that the making of covenants and the breaking of covenants is regulated by Scripture, and we should be reverent as we approach that topic. When it comes to making a covenant or breaking a covenant, it requires reverence on our part. We need to remember the words of God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. In Malachi chapter 2, God says, I hate divorce. There are not a ton of things listed out specifically in Scripture that God hates. Of course, He hates all sin, but a point was made in Malachi 2. God says, I hate divorce. We also have to accept this hard teaching from Jesus if it has been given for you to accept it. That outside of the exceptions, when a divorcee takes another, it is, in fact, adultery. Remember what it said back in Deuteronomy 24, 4? The wife who has been sent away by her husband, when she goes off and takes another, it says she has been defiled. Defiled. Adultery is taking place. She's been defiled. We also recognize that every situation is unique. In Bible college, I took a class. I took uh, three counseling courses. One of the counseling courses was called Marriage and Family Counseling. And I was 22 or 23 at the time. It was a night class. And I remember sitting there as we approached biblical counseling on the topic of divorce. And it was our job to come up with our position on this. And I just remember sitting there thinking, I have had such little exposure to so many things in life. I'd been married just two or three years at that time. Uh, how was I, as a student, to come up with a definitive, authoritative statement on divorce? Well, we can speak as far as Scripture speaks, can't we? But we can only counsel uh, as far as the situation is unique. And every time there's a situation of divorce or remarriage, we have to sit down and figure everything out together, and it's messy. And it's not fun. Every situation is heartbreaking. And it's unique. And we rely on God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. One of the things that's stressed in the booklet is that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Divorce is not the end of a life. 
but that God's forgiveness extends to those who have gone through such a painful and heartbreaking thing like divorce. Ministry doesn't end for those people, but God's grace and mercy are extended to those people, and they can have new beginnings because of God's goodness. And we can also, as we summarize our thoughts, our brief thoughts on divorce and remarriage, we also have to recognize that God uses divorce and remarriage as a metaphor for His relationship with Israel. If you were to read Ezekiel 16, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, God talks about Israel as being that child that He finds along the way that He takes in for His own. He raises up, He cares for, and then she goes off and commits adultery. The nation of Israel abandoning her husband. If you were to read through the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea is this big metaphor of immorality, divorce, reuniting with the spouse, reflecting God's kindness, His consistency, His faithfulness to the covenant. And something I want you to see with me is Jeremiah 3. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah and look at the way God talks about divorce and remarriage in Jeremiah chapter 3, starting at verse 6. If you see the book of Psalms, just go to your right a little bit. Jeremiah chapter 3. We're going to read verses 6 through 18. Beautiful passage having to do with God's goodness with an unfaithful partner, Israel. Jeremiah chapter 3, starting with verse 6. It says, Then the Lord said to me, this is Jeremiah speaking, the prophet, hearing the words of God, the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on a high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception." declares the Lord. Verse 11, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you and I will take, take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. Verse 15 then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you 
on my knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They will no longer say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And it will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Deuteronomy 24.4 When the wife is defiled and she returns, that is an abomination before the Lord, and it brings sin on the land which the Lord your God gives as an inheritance. The husband in Deuteronomy 24 was not gracious toward his wife. He had no favor toward his wife. But the Lord in Jeremiah 3 says, return, I am gracious. Return to me with all your heart, and there will be restoration, there will be reconciliation. And one day, with Israel and with Judah, nationally, in that land that they had defiled, they will return, and God will have His great moment of glory as the faithful covenant-keeping God, as the one who is gracious as the one who shows steadfast love to Israel. What a picture. What a picture we see. He takes something that we've created through our sin, like divorce, something he hates. He takes it and he uses it as an illustration of his faithfulness, his unchanging nature, his kindness to his people. And as we consider all this, continuing to summarize our thoughts as the church, not Israel, as the church, a people that was never joined to God in the first place. We were without hope in the world. We were without the covenants. We were without the promises of God. And yet here we are, the bride of Christ. As we summarize our thoughts on these things, We need to do all that we can in the here and now to make sure the marriages in our local body are reflecting that wonderful marriage of Christ and His bride. We need to take hold of Ephesians 5 that instructs the husband, instructs the wife how to love and respect one another, how to reflect the relationship we are to have with God in their marriages. And something that we can do is perhaps emulate a little bit of what's in the law, this holy, just, and good law. Look at verse 5 with me of Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. They didn't, or they weren't supposed to, rather, wait in Israel until there was a problem in the marriage. They weren't supposed to just send people off, go get married, and then if there's a problem, come back to us. But instead, they adjusted the shoot. They made sure that they got off on the right foot, that they were on the right track. Look at verse 5. It says, When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year, and shall give happiness 
to his wife whom he has taken. You think there's a reason that that verse comes right after a passage about divorce? Get that marriage started off on the right foot, God is saying. And this was a communal effort. Those who were just married were to be marked as being just married. All of their other duties were to be put on hold for a year. That man was to not go out to war so as to lose his life, and a wife would lose her new husband, but they were to have a full year of a true honeymoon phase. So that, look what it says in verse 5, he can give happiness to his wife. He's to love and serve his wife. He's to reflect God's covenant faithfulness, his covenant commitment and his love in that marriage and to care for his bride. This was to help every marriage in Israel establish a foundation. We can think about how might we encourage newlyweds in our church, in our community, in our society to do the same, to establish a good foundation, to adjust the the gate that they launch from, to put them on the right track. It's a communal effort, isn't it? Perhaps there are some newlyweds you know who have lots of responsibilities, and they're really distracted from one another, and they don't have a lot of time for one another. Maybe God would use you to butt in a little bit, to give them some godly counsel and remind them of what's most important, those covenant relationships that God gives us. God's ways are better than our ways. In the following verses, 6 through the end of the chapter, we're going to see some more of God's goodness, but this is really scattered, okay? Your brain was just on one topic for a while. Now put your brain back into like agitation mode or whatever, because we're going to jump all over the place, all right? Let's start in verse 6. We're going to do verses 6 and 10 through 13 together. So let's start in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 24. It says, No one shall take a hand mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for he would be taking a man's life in pledge. Down to verse 10. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. You shall remain outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he is a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. This has to do with generous lending. Loans in Israel, how they were to care for one another financially when someone needed to borrow money. How was it to happen? Well, this gives instructions here. Uh, First thing we read in verse 6 is taking a hand mill or a millstone, which is how they produced and and processed grain. Um, Taking that would be kind of like today saying, give me your fridge and your stove and I'll lend you money. You're taking away that person's ability to preserve and make food. And God says, don't do that. God doesn't say, don't take collateral for the loan. He still says there should be collateral. There should be a pledge for the loan. But it was to be done in a right way. Down in verses 10 through 13, it says that the man giving the loan wasn't allowed to walk into the house and pick what he wanted for the the pledge. He couldn't go in and look around and say, oh, that's really nice. Give me that because I know you'll miss that. I I have a better chance of getting paid back if you give me that item. He wasn't allowed to do that. 
going into someone else's house and picking out his own possession that you want to keep as collateral would be disgraceful to the one receiving the loan. It would bring shame on the house. He wasn't allowed to do that, but instead he was to take even a cloak. If the man was so poor that all he had was this garment that he would sometimes wear through the day, but certainly at night when it would get cool, if that's all he had, that would be enough as collateral. And notice that the man, it says in verse 13, the man who gives the loan was to return that cloak to him at night. If it's going to get cold, if the one who has borrowed money from you is going to suffer in any way, you do what you can as far as it depends on you. You do what you can to keep that person warm. Wow. The law is just so harsh, isn't it? Isn't the law law so mean? That's what people like to characterize the law as. But do you see the grace here? Do you see the same God who has been so gracious to you and has been so kind to you, who has given you warm nights when you didn't deserve any warm nights? You see his character in this? How even if you've been given enough resources to be able to make loans, You were to do it in such a way that you would show grace to the one borrowing money. Wow. The law really is holy and just and good, isn't it? Let's look at verse 7. If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel, and he deals with them violently or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Apparently, kidnapping was a common practice in that region, not just uh, in Israel and the areas around Israel, but even the entire ancient Near East, kidnapping was a common practice. Abusing power to strip people of their freedoms and treat them like your own property, taking them for your own for some sort of selfish gain was something that people did quite a bit. And God says, this is evil. Abusing power that I give in this way is evil. And this is important to remember, this one verse you should try to remember in your mind because there will be people who will try to either write off all of Christianity or write off the Old Testament specifically because it talks about slavery. It says, well, well, the Bible talks about slavery and, and it was wrong about that. What else is it wrong about? It does talk about slavery, but what kind of slavery? According to 24 verse 7, The slave trade that we knew in the 19th century in America was evil and worthy of death. Going over in a boat and taking someone from another country and bringing them back and selling them, treating them like property, that's worthy of the death penalty. So try to remember that. It would help you in your apologetics a little bit, okay? Most most people who put down the Bible haven't, in that way, haven't really read it. So the more you read, the better those conversations will go. All right, just an encouragement for you. Verses 8 and 9. It says, Be careful against an infection of leprosy that you diligently observe and do according to all the Levitical priests teach you. As I have commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. You can write down Leviticus 13 and 14. Those are the two chapters where the priests were instructed very thoroughly, how to um, examine 
and how to go through a cleansing for someone with a skin disease like leprosy. Leviticus 13 and 14. And the incident with Miriam is mentioned here, which is interesting. If you can remember, this is Numbers 12. We won't turn there this morning. But in Numbers 12, it talks about how Miriam had turned against Moses. She was not recognizing or obeying the leadership that Moses had been given in Israel. And she was cursed, and in an instant her skin turned white, and she was leprous. And Moses interceded for her, and after seven days, God healed her of her leprosy. It's interesting that that incident is mentioned here, but there are a couple of reasons why. One is that these priests who were in charge of examining and cleansing leprosy, the people should listen to them. Just as God had granted leadership and authority to Moses, the people were to listen to the priests who also had a measure of leadership and authority. Remember what God did to Miriam. But also, the people were to remember that God is sovereign over diseases. You think our nation would do well to remember that too? God is sovereign over diseases, and therefore we shall seriously implore. We shall seriously get on our knees and pray to God the one who is in charge of the disease, who commands it to go where it goes. Didn't we just sing earlier, tempests go by His command and all the stars obey, but not coronavirus? 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land and your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it become sin to you. Those who are servants, those who you hire, and notice it says whether it's your fellow countrymen or not, so whether it's an Israelite or a pagan, whoever it may be, how are you supposed to treat them? Well, pay them daily. They have no savings, it says. They, they don't go back home to a nice house full of food like you do. But instead, treat those people kindly by paying them daily. Care for them as image bearers of God. All people care for them that way. This requires that an employer in this situation would know his employee well enough to know about his home life. He would know that person well enough to understand that it's, it's rough at home, hardly making ends meet. And what does covenant commitment, covenant love call for? Have compassion. Have compassion. Consider it your responsibility as a steward of God's resources to care for this fellow image bearer. The law is holy and just and good. Verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert justice, do, uh, pervert the justice, do an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. The Israelites were to have right and generous treatment in judicial matters. 
When a matter came up that they had to judge, they had to make a verdict, they were to be righteous and generous in what they were doing. Fathers and sons could not be punished for each other's sins. That was a very common pagan practice, and they were not to copy the pagans in their perversion of justice. They were to remember how they were treated in the land of Egypt by pagans and how the Egyptians treated them harshly and perverted justice all the time. They were to remember that and instead emulate God's justice. And it says, part of justice is not taking a widow's cloak or garment in a pledge. So remember that whole loaning money situation where a poor person, maybe all that she has is her coat? If that person's a widow, don't even take it. Don't even take it. But care for that person and be generous with that person. Not only in judicial matters, but look at verse 19 with me. Even in agricultural matters, it says, When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the bows again, or boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, and for the orphan, and for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. They were to be intentionally generous with their produce, to leave the edges of the field. You would have uh, orphans and widows. You would have the foreigners, the aliens, the pagans who would come through, walk through the land, and you were to leave something there for them intentionally. And then it goes a step farther. What if you left something there unintentionally, like a whole sheaf of grain? You get back to the house and you think, let's see, 19. I had 20. What happened to that other one? When you realize where it is, it says, leave it in the field. The Israelites were to leave it there for anyone passing by. That means anybody passing by who finds it just lying there, no one's around, it's yours. Take it. Because the one who grew those crops is being generous to that person, leaving it there for the poor and for the needy. To go over the olives just once, to go through the grapes just once, and to leave the rest that's there for the poor and the needy. How kind is that? How generous is that? That's not theirs. And aren't we so quick as private property owners here in America to say, well, they didn't earn it. They don't deserve that. Look at the heart of God here. Remember, we're not Israelites. This law wasn't given to us here in America, but this law is given to us to challenge our hearts, to see the heart of God, to see the contrast. And you might be one who's quick to say they don't deserve it. What does God say? Be generous. Leave it for them. It'll be righteousness to you. And for the Israelites, they were to remember how they were slaves in the land of Egypt. Again, how they were treated. Don't be that way, but instead emulate God. Well, let me finish up here with a few thoughts. You 
children of God who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a few thoughts. Thinking back to divorce, remarriage, new marriages, how can you invest in the marriages of our fellowship to promote godliness? I want you to think about that. How can you personally invest in the marriages of our fellowship in order for the sake of promoting godliness in those marriages? Do you believe God can use you to do that? He can and He will. Think about it. In what ways can you be generous in your assisting of others? If you've been given the strength, the resources to be able to help others, in what ways can you be generous? In what ways can you go above and beyond in your care for others? Above and beyond what you think that person deserves. How can you show dignity to that person who needs help? Who have you overlooked in your life? Or who have you taken advantage of in your life? Who are the people that maybe even subconsciously, just because sin dwells within you, you've taken advantage of that person and overlooked them? And finally, Let me just ask you this. You can answer it in your own heart. Do you need to repent of skipping these chapters of the Bible because you thought there was nothing in there for you? (laughs) If that's you, you need to repent of that. Have you not lived consistently saying you need the Bible, but not those books, not those chapters? There's stuff in there that God wants to show you, teach you, in its context. All right? We're not looking to establish a new Israel here. We're not Israel. But we are looking to learn from God. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you because you are faithful. We thank you because you have initiated covenant with us. We thank you that you have been so kind and patient and gracious and merciful that you've poured out on us great love through your Holy Spirit. And you've given us confidence for the future. We have been given all of your promises. There is nothing that we lack if we are in Christ. Forgive us for not loving our neighbor. Forgive us for not loving you. We have not done as we should. But we ask that by your help, your mighty hand, the Spirit who dwells within us, empowering us, willing and working, that we might love our neighbor as Jesus did for your glory, that through us, as we sang earlier, our acts of love and our deeds of faith would show the light of Christ. Use us as instruments in your hand. Make us holy. Cause us to be set apart for your honor and glory. Amen.